So, hi Claudia, and thanks for coming on to Scotonomics. Um, I read a recent article that um, you had spoken to Politico, um, someone at Politico, and at the bottom of the article, you said something that really resonated with me, and that was that you would like everyone to understand how the Fed works, and I would like everyone to understand how the Bank of England works as well. So could you maybe talk about why you feel that way? Right. So first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. I worked at the Federal Reserve for over a decade. I started straight from my PhD in the summer of 2007. So my first year was an absolute birth by fire. I was one of the points on consumer spending. I paid a lot of attention what was happening to families as they were losing their homes, their retirement savings. It it was hard. I mean, it was hard in 2008 in the crisis and the recession. And frankly, it was the recovery, the very slow, very painful recovery, the Fed not doing enough, Congress walking away, even throwing it into reverse and doing austerity not too far into the recession or the recovery. That was really hard. And in the time I was at the Fed, I came to understand what the Fed can do, what the Fed can't do but how important its role is in the economy. And I also saw how hard it is for people to understand what the Fed does. It's not a beloved institution in the United States. And frankly, that's partly the Fed's fault. It's not transparent. It's not easy to understand. And I'm just wired to love talking to people. This is not part of my economics training. It's just part of my upbringing. And so one of my big missions, particularly after I left the Fed, is to bring the Fed to the people and help communicate. I think the Fed's made a lot of progress. I think Jay Powell is a great communicator, but I am here to assist them in that kind of pushing it forward. So how do you envisage that project? How will you go about doing that? Well, I've been very fortunate to have many different platforms where I can share what I know about the Fed. And some of those are platforms like this, doing podcasts for more general audiences. I uh, do a lot of press and there's one a news organization with National Public Radio in the United States. And the journalist I talked to, she'll push me to be like, can you come up with a metaphor? Right. And one of the last interviews I did with her was on what's referred to as tapering. So the Federal Reserve in the United States has been buying assets to help push interest rates down. They've been buying U.S. Treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. There's a big debate about when they should slow those purchases, when they should stop those purchases. So they just don't put as much downward pressure on interest rates, which should happen as the economy recovers. But there's a big debate among the Federal Open Market Committee as to when. So Marcia asked me, can you give a metaphor to people who don't follow the Fed? So that afternoon, I was taking my son uh, to a water park, right? This was going to be our outing, uh, summer outing. And uh, I told her, I said, well, tapering is kind of like a water slide, right? The more water the Fed puts on the slide, like the more you're purchasing the assets, the faster you're going to go down the slide. You know, once you get close to the bottom, you don't need as much water. You got some momentum going. If they turn the water off too soon and you are still halfway up the slide, it will be a very painful ride to the finish line. So journalists absolutely love this, like, because it's just so hard. Like, 
the Fed, you talk about tapering, tapering. What is tapering? Right. So I try really hard. I won't, you know, sit, that's not a perfect metaphor. Uh, and, but it's, it's really important for me to be in places where I have to figure out how to convey it. That said, I, I also talk in places where it's very technical and I don't have to explain tapering, but I try to respect the audience and I want to bring more people into the conversation about what the Fed is doing. So in Scotland at the moment, we have a campaign, we've had a campaign for a long time, um, but we had a referendum in 2014 to become an independent country. Mm -hmm. um, there is some misunderstanding about the idea of having our own uh, central bank and currency. What are your thoughts on trying to be an independent country without your own central bank and your own currency. Right. It's it's tough. There's There are many trade-offs in economic policy. Sorry. Monetary policy in general is just one piece of the puzzle. In the monetary policy space, it, it can be very difficult. And this is absolutely something the European Union has struggled with. Larger countries, you know, like United Kingdom, where you have... Um, or any anytime you have a group of countries that have similar economies, they might be smaller economies. I mean, the United States is the biggest one, right? And so it becomes difficult to have one central bank that is making a decision about interest rates. Um, sometimes it's regulatory policy too, but interest rates in, in particular. And countries are at different places i think and, and we see this in the united states too right we have individual states in the country uh different places have different industrial bases i think this becomes most prominent in a recovery in a recession all the ships tend to sink together right and so then monetary policy it's not that tough right like you've got to like just get those interest rates down you've got to do what you can to get the recession stopped, make it not as severe as it could be. Recoveries are not as simple, right? In a recession, different industries will come out sooner, different countries, and for all kinds of reasons that the that a central bank has no control over. And so then it becomes really tough. How do you balance the effects in one place or another? I think, uh, when, and we're seeing it right now, central banks across the world some are starting to tighten in terms of like they're trying to get interest rates actually to come back up and some aren't like the federal reserve and and that just shows how hard it is and how very and they might all be making the right decision because it's a decision about their particular country or countries that they are making decisions for so it's really hard there are benefits to having your own central bank we also know that in fiscal and in trade, it there are real benefits to not going it. Alone. I was going to chip in with a a, a playground metaphor, and, okay. and 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 take up Claudia's metaphor challenge. Okay. Um, but I kind of saw that as the, the central bank. It's like it's like a seesaw. It's trying to balance different things within the economy. And a, a central bank, for example, the Bank of England, is balancing, balancing um, investment in northern England with uh, prices of mortgages round about, you know, let's say London. And it's continually doing these things. And, and in Scotland, we just wonder what concern is there for these five 
five million people, you know, in this central bank, this 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 bank that's looking after sixty million, and that's kind of the concern. And mm-hmm. and one little thing I, I wanted to get your specific opinion on was, mm-hmm. um, part of the um, proposed uh, post independence settlement is for an independent Scotland to still have the Bank of England, and still use sterling for a. a, a, a a period probably up to 10 years so scotland would be independent in that mm-hmm. sense but would be having the monetary policy controlled by the bank of england any thoughts on on how if that if that would work is that unique has anyone else got any kind of arrangement like that that you're aware of how is what right now and for the next 10 years differ from what's happening say in the european union where you have the european central bank wouldn't be well scotland wouldn't have any influence over the bank of england Whereas if we were part of the European Union, we would be one of the members who had, you know, even if it's kind of tacit influence, but we would effectively be giving our monetary policy to a foreign country. I see. Uh, well, I guess two things I'll say. Uh, one is transitions are extremely important, right? Financial markets uh, can be kind of jumpy. Right. And and I mean, this is why you see central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, is so like trying to give what they call forward guidance, like tell you where we're going. Um, So it makes sense if the goal eventually is to have one's own currency, to have a central bank that's overseeing like for that particular country, then don't do it overnight. Right. Like make sure you have the transition. Now, that does mean in the transition, there are unique challenges right and i mean frankly even like independence doesn't um erase all of the connections across economies right like the united states in in the recovery from the great recession there was a period where europe was uh, more aggressively pursuing austerity raising rates pulling back And there was a very frightening time where it looked like Europe and the troubles it was having could pull the global economies back into a recession. So in many ways, we are all in this together. We see this now with COVID, a lot of the problems, the shortages, the energy, like we're all doing it together. So I, it it is tough to, you know, hand over the keys even for a, a short period of time. And yet I think it, it would be, shocking if the if the bank of england weren't taking a broad view of the regional economies now in terms of something that might be comparable and just underscores that we're all in this together smaller countries ones that may even have or do even have their own central banks they're very affected by what's happening in the United States, what's happening in Europe, right? So larger countries, when they start moving their interest rates, you know, the dollar is the global currency, right? So I, I think there's we there's there are many benefits to autonomy. It can be tailored to a particular country's circumstances. So I, I see the argument for it, and yet we are not alone economically in this endeavor, nor should we want to be, right? So I think, you know, transitions are important. There are definitely upsides, but it's not, in a global economy, there are there are a lot of interconnections, particularly when mm. we're 
countries physically close together. Yeah, I mean, we look to the north, you know, and we see Finland, Iceland, which has 350,000 people with its own central bank, and, you know, Finland and Norway, Norway. you know, in Norway, yeah, you know, we see those similar countries that, that have that, and, and that's where that's where we're looking. I think yeah. one of the concerns is that you mentioned the financial markets being quite jumpy, and without a shadow of doubt, the paper that's been written that backs up the Scottish government's approach is called the Sustainable Growth Commission, and its audience is the financial services industry, and it's wanting to say to them, everything's fine, there'll be a smooth transition over a period of time. But to use the seesaw again, the flip side of that is potential austerity and not having the fiscal powers to be able to tackle the huge inequality and issues that currently exist in Scotland. And 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 Kieran and I both feel that that, that, that seesaw is not quite balanced and, and giving over that control to the central bank for such a long period of time does seem to be overly overly supportive of the financial services industry yeah no and i i think your point about connecting what central banks do to what fiscal authorities can and can't do right because uh, when a government borrows they they borrowed an interest rate the central bank has a role in not setting interest rates no central bank not the fed or not any bank decides we're going to have this rate but they can in terms of a rate that goes to consumers. They can do a lot to say what rate banks will borrow from the central bank, but they can't tell people how to pass that on um, to you know, businesses investing consumers. And that has a lot to do with how the economy is growing, how taxes come in, right? Like this does go back and affect um, what fiscal policy can do. I think what's interesting is we've seen in the past year a big fiscal response. If you think across various developed uh, countries that that had the ability to go out as a government and borrow um, in the crisis, it was on a scale that has not been seen in generations. I mean, this was like fighting a war. COVID was, was treated that way. In the United States, within a year, the Congress allocated almost $5 trillion we have a $20 trillion economy, but that's a lot of money within a year. I firmly believe that was the right thing to do. Not even a decade before, if you had told an economist that's what we were going to do, and we were going to take the level of federal debt to GDP to the where we are now, they would have run screaming. I mean, that was a big part of the austerity push. So now we're in this place, and I think markets wonder this too. I mean, they're the ones that are going to lend in the end. Is there re like what is that limit? What is that trade-off between letting giving countries what they need in terms of borrowing to invest in infrastructure, long-term growth, fighting inequality? Like as market participants, should we make that bet? And right now, interest rates have stayed low. They've risen some recently, but I mean, these are still really low interest rates. So in some ways, you can look at the market and say they're begging governments to borrow. Now, not every country in the world has that capacity and particularly smaller emerging markets developing it like this is not their mm -hmm. path. Um, but much of Europe, much of like if you can make the case for the structural reforms or, or the, the growth, sorry, that's kind of a loaded term structural reforms. But if you can make a case for programs that are fighting growth, if it can get through the legislative process in a country, markets 
largely look like they're going to go along and, and, and help with those investments. Now, the, the politics of this is like a totally different ballgame than the financial markets. But there is this really important interplay between central banks and the effects they're having on interest rates and the space that governments have to borrow in on it. I mean, I have argued that we are facing a sea change in both fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, the Federal Reserve, as one example, has adopted a new framework. Right? So this isn't just about keeping interest rates low for longer, uh, which other countries have you know, joined in lowering interest rates in the crisis. The Fed changed its framework to, one way of thinking about it is they've elevated the employment side of their mandate to be on par with their inflation side. They put um, some guardrails in place with this average inflation targeting that should make them focus on what we have seen for inflation to some extent give them the ability to quote unquote make up for low periods of inflation so in 2020 we had a lot going on that was way more painful uh, but inflation was really low right the demand wasn't there and so the inflation in 2021 has been high high relative to anything we've seen for decades to a point, the Federal Reserve had said, we will tolerate that to the extent it averages out low inflation last year. And frankly, for years, the Fed had been a little bit under what it wanted to see. So that's a big change. If they had their old framework, it's really hard to imagine how they wouldn't have already started pulling back on the, you know, the pushing down interest rates. And then they added on their employment side that they want to see broad-based and inclusive employment. So even though we never achieved either side of the dual mandate after the Great Recession, they've raised the bar on the employment side. So we'll see. They're being tested. I think the Fed is well on its way to its sea change. I think what we've already seen this year really shows that they are committed to at least seeing through this test of their framework. They will pivot. They are soon going to be taking some of the downward pressure off interest rates as the recovery is progressing. Um, they're definitely something to watch. Now, the fiscal policy sea change, and this part of what I talked about, the big deficit spending, it's moving, but it is moving increasingly slow uh, because now we've moved into the phase of infrastructure package, which look like it was to the finish line and yet it is not uh and so that's about a trillion dollars in total about half of that is new spending uh, and that had had bipartisan support so we'll see if that makes it through i mean that that one will pass it's just not clear if it's going to pass with everybody holding hands and then the big debate right now is on the investments in people social programs, safety net, climate change, right? And that is a bill that it's, it's um, going to be a Democratic-led bill. It's referred to as a reconciliation package for very wonky reasons we don't need to get into. But you can think of it as the investing in people part of President Biden's agenda. And it is... It's going to be tough to get that one to the finish line. There's a huge debate about how big the package should be. Frankly, I think 
I understand why that's happening. It's a very historical artifact of how Congress works. And yet it's so misguided because you can spend $3 trillion really well. You can spend a trillion dollars really badly, right? So it's not about the size. It's about what you do. And yet we are spending a lot of time in the United States wrangling over the size. And the last thing I'd say is while we are at a sea change and where fiscal policy could be very active in long-term growth in a way that they haven't been for decades, this is this is the chance, right? Like the time the clock is running out on having a unified government, having Democrats and you know, with control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. So I'm not holding my breath. Instead, I'm working very hard uh, to push for good policies, but it's it's really in the hands of the politicians like the politics are looming large but at, at least you've got a clock that's ticking here in the uk <laughs> no one has even pressed the timer yet you know so mm. so we're looking across to what's happening in the states and with biden and seeing that there's there, there's some momentum there's just mm -hmm. nothing there's nothing like that here mm -hmm. claudia I, you've I, been looking at some green fiscal policy research um it's not out yet i don't think it's complete yet would you like to give us a little um backstage look at, at what you're you're covering with that Right. And I, you know, to be clear, I'm trying, one of the things that I do as an economist is try to translate and bring research that a lot of people are doing to a, a broader audience. Uh, the, in the United States, it has been politically fraught to think about how do we fight climate change? I mean, we are a country that people, including politicians, don't, all agree that we have a climate change crisis. So this has absolutely made it difficult to make any progress in terms of pursuing agendas. One of the uh, discussions that got me, just given my background particularly, uh, motivated to, to talk more and try and understand better the uh, climate change economic policy was that recently, uh, climate change got pointed at the Fed, right? That um, there's a, President Biden will soon make an ap appointment for the chair of the Federal Reserve. And there were some uh, politicians and Democrats and other activist groups that had said that Powell, Jay Powell, had not done enough in his tenure as the chair in terms of the Fed fighting climate change, right? And, and had been very silent publicly in, in these efforts until the election and Democrats went into power. And I bristled at the idea that the Fed should be, like that that should be so important in deciding who leads the Fed. And I also, the other alarm that it set off for me was just this idea that the Fed can do so much, right? Like the Fed had a lot of pressure on it about its maximum employment mandate that, you know, we have racial inequities in the U.S. economy and absolutely the Fed should pursue its mandate. And, and I mean, this is why they emphasize the broad-based and inclusive uh, framework. But if you think that the Federal Reserve using interest rates is going to close the black-white unemployment rate gap in the United States, that's just, that's not, that's not going to happen. They don't have the tools to do that. Congress has the tools. Absolutely. Congress has the tools to fight climate change. 
you know, the Fed can assist. The Fed should not be leading. It is not an elected body of officials. We have those sitting down the street <laughs> in in terms of the, the House and the Senate. And so, so I think it's important. The Fed has things it can do. They're much more technical. It's doing research, running some of the stress tests on banks to see if they're ready, particular insurers for um, climate disasters, which have become more regular and and more severe in the United States. So the Fed has things it can do. If Congress tells it to do more, the Fed is very competent, it will do more. In thinking about green fiscal policy, and I think why I haven't done as much writing is I'm still, you know, being a student of um, what what is out there in terms of the economic space. And one one area that I think is really important is that when Congress moves into this space, that they are very aware of the effects it will have on workers and communities that are very intensive in our traditional energy sectors. The parallel that one would make potentially is when uh, the United States embarked on its free trade agenda. So the um, NAFTA, which opened up the trade for, uh, well, just really, opened up trade in general, but particularly with Mexico and Canada. And there's a lot of research. I mean, this was decades ago and there's a lot of research and it, it um, and as it opened up to China, it gets referred to as the China shock, right? There are, there are parts of the country where the manufacturing base took a big hit and that's caused a lot of economic distress and frankly, a lot of um, sentiment among workers and communities that they had just been left behind, right? The Congress walked away. Um, we, we don't need, we know why that happened. Like there were lots of people that benefited from lower prices. We didn't step in and help those workers who were hurt like a lot in the communities. That's a tough, it's, it's hard to know how to do that right, but that has to be so high on the agenda when we think about the climate change and and really get into the details of what kind of skills are needed, what kind of retraining. So it's like, I know what we, or I feel like there's a, a clear uh, concern, but then, then the question, and this is what I do as an economic policy advisor. I don't just tell you, Hey, let's worry about it. I try to come in and say, here's research, here's study, here's what we could do. Um, and it's, it's tough because I've said, I don't think the Fed can do it. Congress has to. But because we've had trouble doing these kind of big agendas in the past, using trade as a parallel, and then on top of it, climate is such a politicized minefield. So Yeah, I mean, you bring up an important point that actually Paul Tucker, who used to work at the Bank of England, pointed out in an interview with Mark Blythe which is that it, this is also, this has occurred in the UK as well, where to a certain extent, it's almost if the politicians expect the people that work at the central banks to solve their political problems. You know, they, the politicians are voted in to solve the problems. The bank is really merely a tool of the politicians. Um, yes, absolutely, they should be taking advice from economists. Absolutely, they should. But, you know, fundamentally, we elect people in to take responsibility. The Fed, you know, they are highly competent. They have training, not just in economics, regulatory, legal work. And yet 
they're not elected officials the more that we ask them to do but with i mean congress made the fed congress can take the fed away this trying to push on the fed to do things but without new legislation without new orders from congress as a whole that i don't want to see the like there are big problems in the world they need to be solved the fed could help but i don't want to see the fed move into spaces where congress hasn't told it specifically to be working because that's not democratic right like it is on our elected officials to get it done now that's not encouraging but that that's what we got that's that's what a democracy is i think right now with the Congress is struggling not just with the politics, but they, they're out of practice with these big fiscal spending investment type projects. I mean, the United States, we joked through, you know, the four years of the pre Trump presidency, next week was going to be infrastructure week. You know, that was the next week we're going to invest in the bridges and roads. And even that package, which is, I mean, that really has a lot of support in terms of both sides of Congress, like getting that done, it just, it never rose to the top of the list. It never got across the finish line. That, that just shows how hard it is to get more government spending out the door. Um, yeah. But that, that's the way we do it, right? Like that, that <laughs> is the path forward. And, and hopefully the, the COVID crisis, the one very so thin silver lining is that it amplified the inequities, the structural problems in the US economy, I think in a lot of economies before COVID. And so it is hard to deny right now that we have big investments we need to make. Knowing we need to do it is different than getting it done, but we are having conversations in Washington, D.C. that are were just like unfathomable mm -hmm. even a year before COVID. Yeah, so the devil's in the detail, right? Like they're, to get things across the finish line, I mean, members of Congress need to go back to their district and be able to say, hey, I got this for you, mm -hmm. right? So I think the big, and that's just, that's the way this works. They have their their projects lined up and ready to go the most of the debate is focused on the big the big programs right so as examples the some of the big programs that are being talked about in this reconciliation bill are a new child tax credit or extending one that was put in place uh, during in the american rescue plan the, the package that passed earlier this year so extending that, and and that's just giving cash to families who have children, young children. Uh, there's talk about creating a paid family leave program in the United States. I mean, a lot of these programs are one that to Europe, it's like, I can't believe you all don't have this, but it, you know, the United States has, has had a very different approach to its yeah. safety net in the past. And that's where the climate change is at. There's legislation to expand education for, for pre uh, public education for preschool which is the year before you know it's like a four-year-old kind of education and free community college so those are just some and prescription drugs for seniors like met, lowering those prices so there are a whole assortment of big programs that people are talking about and then there's always going to be a little bit left over 
at the end, you know, in like hundreds of billions, uh, left over at the end to make sure that different Congress people can right. get something to take back. But I think one of the one of the pieces that is really interesting in terms of how fiscal policy is happening is how much control Congress tries to exercise over what people do with it, right? This was part of the discussion earlier about state and local governments. They were one of the last ones to get any kind of funding during the crisis because they just give money, right? So there are going to be some states that do things with the money Democrats don't like and some states that do something the Republicans don't like. It's like, you know, giving over the discretion to do what you want to do. Then a crisis, sometimes they'll like make peace with that because it's just, you know, Congress can't legislate all the, you know, exactly what they want states to do. A big, we've seen that debate shift and it's really interesting debate in terms of this child tax credit because it's just a transfer of money. In the past, in the United States, the, the existing before COVID child tax credit and some of the other programs like the earned income tax credit they only went to people who worked. Like they were primarily for lower wage workers, but you had to work. So they, there were these work requirements. Currently, the, this new child tax credit has no work requirement. By all estimates, it is, rate, it is getting to children who live in poverty, right? And particularly deep poverty in the United States, which is hard. Like deep poverty means you don't have a lot of income. So there is a big discussion, even amongst uh, Democrats, of, well, we should have work requirements because we want people to work. It's good for the kids if parents work. And then there's a lot of discussion about what the phase-outs are, how, how many people really deserve this. And what happens is if the income require, like where it starts phasing out happens too soon, that means that lower wage workers end up having really high tax rates because every hour they work, they're losing more of these benefits. So there's this really interesting debate happening between the old way of Congress, but basically telling people you have to work and we're going to decide who's deserving to we're just going to give you money and you're going to figure out what you and your, your family need. Um, if, that, if that new child tax credit moves through in this just cash and give it to lower, like without work, that's, that's a really big change. And it's really Congress stepping away and saying, hey, people, do what you need to do. I don't know how that one's going to end up. I'm personally very in favor of the cash transfers. I just think the government, it's it just should get out of people's lives in that respect. I mean, let the parents raise their kids. <laughs> so. Yeah, You said that there's a real concern that shifting to a green economy is going to have a big impact on people who are in uh, industries that aren't green we've got something similar in the, the united kingdom in scotland specifically with the amount of oil and gas uh, but there was one um I, I don't know how scientific the survey was but uh, they interviewed people in the oil and gas Edinburgh industry and 81 percent of them said that they would be happy to retrain in green technology so we we think that's quite positive but the comment i wanted to make was that when we moved from very dirty coal in the late 80s into the 90s, there was huge swathes of the country who were just left alone and left desolate. And obviously Thatcher 
assumed that's if she cared she assumed that the market would step in and would retrain, retrain all these people and would repair all those communities and if you visit the central belt in scotland you can see that that never took place so when we're talking about green fiscal policy is that something that they're considering in the states is how to do this and not leaving it to the market right well and that's the fiscal part of this is getting the money out Right. The, a lot of the climate change will happen through regulatory changes, say gas prices you know, need to be up to try to um, curb use. Um, and there might be you know, ways to encourage industries that are in renewables. And yet it is very clear. And even within the climate change space in Europe, I mean, when you start moving and you don't think about the impacts that are borne disproportionately by not just workers in those industries, but the gas tax is a good example. I mean, people, you can't shift the way you get to work and you get around on a dime. And, you know, it it hurts lower wage workers, lower income workers. And so, you know, we know what we need to do, but as the, you pointed out, we don't have a lot of practice. The government doesn't in these these moments of transition. And it's tough because, yes, we know from some past attempts that the markets don't like they'll make the transition, but they're going. I mean, companies are about profits, right, and their own survival as companies. They need to take care of their workers, but they don't need to take care of the workers that they don't have. They got let go. Right? So, so the responsibility, you know, the government is there. They can support these workers that are displaced. They can support communities that are displaced. Unfortunately, the track record of retraining programs is not good, right? Like there were assistance programs for people displaced from trade. They fell far short. They weren't well organized. So the area that's referred to in the United States as workforce development, which you know has a long past, it's not universally a, a good, effective past, they we 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 gotta figure that out. And and much of that is partnerships between you know the community colleges, the training centers the workers themselves, the businesses, right? Like it has to be a collaborative effort. Um, the government can lead and convene and, and have metrics and goals, but that idea that we're just gonna let the market figure it out will, I mean, it will eventually, but it's, it's going to leave a lot of destruction in its path and that that is, that feeds into the political problems mm -hmm. that we have. Now. My understanding is that America is really behind with its infrastructure. Yeah. Actually, your civil service needs to grow quite a bit. You know what I'm talking about? You know, actually employing the government, employing people to build these bridges and build these railways and getting getting your infrastructure back up to the 21st century, which I hear and read it's not at. There's a couple things with infrastructure in the United States. One is it's a big country, right? And so just the upkeep of bridges and roads, let alone building new kinds of transit that would be more energy 
uh, efficient or you know less of a negative impact on the climate. So you've got a lot of you just have a lot of upkeep you have to do. The state and local governments uh, have funding from Congress. That's part of why the infrastructure bill, like some of it was already funding that was set aside to go to state and local governments. They are given a lot of discretion about what it is they need to build, um, what they need to repair and what they need to build. The other thing that's happened in the United States, which in some ways is related to these layers of government, is it has gotten really expensive to build. Right. So and you've had a lot of headlines, big infrastructure projects in, say, the Boston area, New York City, that just like take forever and cost an immense amount of money. This is where it gets like we know what the problem is, but because it has levels, there are, are layers of government. So permitting can take a long time getting the approval. It runs into some of the environmental concerns. Like, where can you build? And then you have a lot of property owners who will fight pretty hard to make sure that a new bridge or train doesn't go through their backyard. So it's, we're, in some ways, you know, the United States has developed and, and we have all these, you know, the networks, the transportation, but in some ways we're a victim of our own success in that you get to a certain point where it just, it's, it's not like China where we can build a road in a matter of weeks, right? Because they're just, there's a lot of roadblocks and each of those adds to the cost. And so then if you cap something at say, oh, we're only gonna do a trillion dollars, that goes really fast, right? And so it, it's, it's hard to do these big transit programs and it, start, and it really does start to run into some of the climate agenda, like we, we need to not just build infrastructure, we need to build it in a way that moves us towards being a more green energy country. And we have a long way to go with that. Yeah. I wonder what your position is on, are you able to achieve climate targets with any kind of, you know, four, five, six percent growth? And, you know, this is this idea of, can we really have green growth when America is going to need 500 billion tons of concrete to create its infrastructure for a green economy. We have we have big problems. They're tough to solve. I think actually going back to you know what you were talking about with the monetary policy that you all are facing in Scotland, that when you have a long term goal, you have a transition, right? And this is and so you have to know where you're trying to get along the way. You're you're going to have to make some decisions that don't always put the long-term goal first like you're working towards it i guess you know to make it concrete an example with climate change is during the uh, recession and early in the recovery there was a lot of discussion as to whether the federal reserve which had a lending facility that congress had put in place to medium-sized businesses and there were calls from some members of congress this was not in the legislation but there were calls from some members of congress that the federal reserve not lend to businesses in the traditional energy sector because this issue of climate change and while i understand that argument and i do believe that we need green fiscal policy and we have to move the needle in the united states on our emissions in a recession, in a crisis, I mean, these businesses employ workers. They're often central in communities. So to me, 
that was not the time because there there's no transition right like you're talking about in the midst of a crisis and so yes we need to talk about this but we have to be reasonable about the timeline and in the united states this because we do not have everyone on board with that long-term goal if we move too fast and it hurts too many people a new administration a new congress can come in and they can roll it back and we can end up you know two steps back and that you just you can't do that so there is a balancing and it's tough and we have not i mean frankly the united states has not made a lot of progress claudia thank you so much for for joining us it's been absolutely fascinating and enjoy the rest of your day thanks again yes, and thanks thank for joining you. us on scotonomics all right thank you thanks claudia thank you so much yeah no, that was